But if we're honest, we will look into the mirror and see what the truth is, and see what the truth is, and see what the truth is. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. Uh, you're listening to the No Illusions podcast uh, on the podcast network. My name's Cameron Riley. It's Thursday, June 9, 2011. I'm sitting here recording an interview with uh, Adam Shand, veteran crime reporter from Victoria, freelance journalist, author, uh, writing a screenplay for an upcoming documentary based on a book. And we've already done all of this, but I'd forgotten to hit the record button. So we're doing it again. Adam, welcome back to the show, mate. Thank you. I thought there was no censorship on your podcast, but uh, anyway, you've got to record the stuff. Thank you. For, love, love, lovely to be here, Cameron. Again. Um, uh, so we were just talking about the fact that there's uh, – a documentary being made about the book. You last time you were on, you were talking about your last book, King of Thieves, about the Kangaroo Gang. Documentary being made about it. Tell us, tell us more about it. Yeah, we, we've uh, we've done a deal with the BBC worldwide, so they're going to show a, a, docu- a two part, uh, you know, two hour documentary on their worldwide channels, the pay TV channels. And uh, currently, we're also writing a movie as well. So we're actually really trying to squeeze the last pips out of this story. Uh, we've uh, just got funding from Screen Australia to develop a script and writing with Andrew Knight of, of Sea Change and Rake fame and um, really having a lot of fun with it. It's been, uh, you know, it's just awesome. So a documentary and a feature film. Mm, yeah, we're trying to do the, the real kangaroo gang and then the, the fictional one with the, with the uh, Hollywood romance thrown in and all the, all the stuff you expect in a feature film. Oh, the people that were involved in making Ned Kelly with Heath Ledger aren't, aren't involved, are they? No, there's certainly not. No, no. It's, uh, it's Essential Media, which made Rake uh, for the ABC, and they're also doing the Jack Irish. No, Pardon? I don't watch TV. I don't know these shows. It, it? Well, some, well some, of you, some of your viewers might still, you Good know. Good show. Good show, but, Rake. Should I watch Rake it? Is a, Rake is a fantastic show. It's about a, um, a, a dissolute lawyer running around Sydney. It's, it's uh, styled after the um, uh, notorious uh, lawyer Charles Waterstreet in Sydney there. Who's um, who's had a very good time with 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 wine, women, and song, and occasionally the law. So um, the 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 writer of that, um, Andrew Knight, uh, you know, has used that as a bit of an intro into the, some of the characters that uh, that uh, that I've introduced to him, which which could only come from a sort of Damon Runyon, you know, style uh, style fiction, really. Excellent. And what what's the BBC's interest? I know these guys were knocking over jewelry stores in London. Is that right from memory? Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a massive appetite. For true crime around the world, and particularly in Britain, I mean, there was a, there was a burst of films, you know, the kind the kind of Guy Ritchie genre type films uh, into crime, but they haven't really done a lot of true crime, believe it or not. And in Australia, with our underbelly and uh, you know series and all this kind of stuff, we've actually um, uh, got a got a bit of a niche in the market here. So they're looking for product out of Australia. The BBC Worldwide uh, approached me about this, and we said we'd love to do it, you know. And so uh, they have this crime and justice special each October, so we're doing it for that. And um, it, it certainly was it was a huge happening in Britain at the time because it, um, it they kind of went out of the radar for a long time, and then um, but but took millions of pounds worth of jewels, and they even knocked over banks all in broad daylight, no weapons, gentlemen thieves. I don't know if you've ever read, uh, read the book Raffles. The old, um, you know, the, the gentleman thief who played cricket for England and was a, you know, was a, a burglar at night kind of thing. That, that's the style of, of, uh, of story it's going to be. Fantastic. Uh, so it, Australia in the 90s was known for quirky, daggy sort of comedy slash musicals. Now we're known for true crime. Is that how it's breaking Well, down? sure. You know, I mean, we were a, a country founded on crime, you know, 168,000 convicts shipped out here. And the idea is that 100 went back at the, you know, 100 went back in the 60s, 
and um, you know, and reestablish the family, you know, tradition, if you like. Um, so it's, I mean, it, it's a really, I mean, I've done a lot of crime now. I've written about it and so forth, and and uh, it's been usually about drugs and murder and violence and sort of the, the sort of stuff. And this thieving is a little more life affirming, if you like. I mean, it's I use that term advisedly, but certainly when you look at the diamond trade as it was of the sixties. These guys were, were thieves robbing thieves. Um, you know, these diamonds were sourced in Africa and other places where, the, you know, the local, the local population was exploited and, and a huge riches stolen from these countries. And then um, they were sold at five times their actual value um, to consumers. So you know, as part of this whole De Beers, Anglo-American, um, you know, uh, control of supply of the diamond trade, which, which gave the, you know, through the marketing and, and, the, and the sort of the, the, the Hollywood movies and all this kind of stuff gave the, the stones a false uh, value because when you try to sell your, your lovely stone that you've been given by your, you know, your boyfriend or whatever that you, and you've, you've gotten rid of them and you want to sell the stone, you get one-fifth the value. So um, it's an interesting commentary, I guess, on, on modern uh, commerce as well as it is about uh, crime and so forth. Yeah, um, that's a really interesting perspective on it, actually. I mean, it's a bit of a uh, Chopper Reed-esque perspective, isn't it, uh, robbers robbing robbers and we seem to think that's less uh less uh despicable than robbing innocent civilians oh hold on well, a sec for me mate i've got a legend customer here I... sorry about that that's right no worries at all i thought the odds of a customer actually turning up in this hour would be slim but uh, obviously not <laughs> slim enough and i so, need a cigar uh so we're, we're back we just got interrupted i had to go sell a uh, some cigar paraphernalia to a lovely man but uh, we were talking about diamond rings and the the whole idea that the kangaroo gang was stealing from another class of criminals let's say a, a more white collar well what, what kind of criminals would you call these de beers of the world just corporate heisters well they're kind of um you know corporate pirates you know merchant pirates or something because <clears throat> i mean the, the, the myth about diamonds is that they are rare they're not there's um you know massive amounts of diamonds under the ground and the whole trick of diamond value has been to regulate supply and, and create a huge marketing campaign around them that started in the 50s um, to create this myth of scarcity and uh, this idea that diamonds are the most concentrated store of value that, that, that the world has ever known. It's not true. Um, there's, uh, so, so they always regulated supply. They kept the prices high. Um, you had this added, added layer of thieves going to such lengths to steal these, these bits of coloured glass, essentially, that it, it created the, the myth of value. So the average person who... Who would, who would spend a year's wages on a spec for his girlfriend, thought he was getting value. But when you try to sell that diamond, you get one for five. You know, so it's uh, so they they used to rationalise that the, you know that they were stealing from thieves themselves. And you've actually uh, been able to get in contact. Some of these kangaroo gang members are still alive. There are. They you know, they 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 range from their probably mid 60s up to their 80s you know and there's a, a cross section who are, who, are, who are still alive and they and they're talking and uh, and you know with these things once you speak to one and the one person said oh he wasn't too bad he didn't judge me you know there's no moral position here they're more than willing to talk because this was you know i guess everyone has a story about the 60s who lived through it you know it was an extraordinary time and and this is their story it was a, a you know a time for experimenting with new methods of thieving and and celebrating and drinking and taking drugs and all this kind of stuff so you know, it, it, they had a really, really good time. I'm a bit jealous on one level. And I assume there's some sort of statute of limitations on these crimes. They can't get arrested for them now. 
Well, that's the interesting thing, Cameron, is that a lot of these stores were never that keen to um, make much of the robberies because they were covered by insurance. Um, they, they, uh, they didn't want to often take these things to court because then you'd have a, almost a how-to rob them uh, being displayed in the, in the evidence. So they were very keen just to get the police report, um, get their insurance, and sometimes they even overclaimed because the thieves weren't going to argue. And a lot of these stones had, yeah, a lot of these stones had had a, had a pretty dodgy provenance anyway. So you know, suddenly a two carat would suddenly become a five carat, say, you know, this kind of thing. So you know, as I say, there was a there was a deep sort of vein of, of, of dishonesty in this whole trade. And and the and the bigger issue, I guess, for you know, for the um, when when you look when you look at England generally, is that it, it was founded on theft. I mean, one of the uh, my main characters in the in the in the book, the true crime book, was saying, well. You know, who was the greatest thief in history? Well, Elizabeth I of England, of course. She sent the, uh, you know, her privateers, Drake and Hawkins, to the Caribbean in the, in the 15th century to, to rob the Spanish treasure ships. And that essentially built uh, the British Empire. That was the huge injection of capital that, that, that took um, them from being a, you know, a small power to being a, you know, a massive naval power as they became. And, of course, the Spanish Armada was all about coming to, um, to square up with the, uh, the robber queen sort of thing. So, so you had this idea that, uh, and Nietzsche talks about this, that the, the early sort of merchant uh, philosophy was actually more a sort of refinement of piracy. So it's kind of, you know, the moral high ground is, is difficult to find in this. That's awesome. Well, that sounds like a great story, man. I can't wait to see the documentary and the feature film. I hope they both go well for you. Thank you. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, robber barons. Um, now I know that you've written a book about the um, the biker gangs. A bit involved yeah, I've just, in the biker gangs. I just I've just uh, actually finished in the last few weeks, and it's uh, it's been a fascinating exercise as we've seen, you know, across the country this this desire to bring them to heel, to stop them associating. It's gone through each state. I mean, it's Queensland where you are. It's, uh, they're, they're, they're going through that process. It's, it's happening now here in Victoria. There's a new squad been formed in recent times. And um, we just see this extraordinary, uh, you know, um, campaign to get rid of them. And um, it, to me, it's incredibly wrong-headed. It just doesn't, it doesn't get to the, the heart of organised crime at all. It gets to a, a visible threat. These guys who, you know, loud motorbikes with, with uh, you know, these... These uh, very visible symbols, places of the same. Oh, I lost my mic. Yeah. I just dropped off my just, just Wait while Adam fixes his yeah, mic. I'll just, I'll just fish, up, fish it back up where it should be. Sorry. That sounds better. You were sounding a bit echoey for the last few minutes, too, so that's good. Well, so how's that? I'll put it down a bit lower. It should be better. How's that? Very good. Good. Yeah, um, we've seen this extraordinary campaigns by state governments, and law and order is the big thing in, in, in states. Um, they want to you know, let people know that the streets are safe, even though that they can't really guarantee that, and, and to take out this visible threat who seems to be at the heart of all immorality and corruption and violence. They're, they're really an easy target. And um, you know, they're being described as you know, the new uh, form of elite organized crime, the mafia on wheels, if you like. And uh, my research just really uh, disproves that, in my view. I'll get there'll be howls of protest and uh, and so forth, but uh, it's it's what I actually observed inside the clubs is that you've got um, the good, the bad, and the ugly in there. You've got guys from a range of backgrounds, but they share a desire for fraternity. A um, you know, men uh, really crave that sort of thing. Women do it naturally. They tend to get together, and they there is a strong sisterhood. Men. Do a lot of chest thumping about it, and they and they try to find it 
<clears throat> in sporting clubs or joining the military or joining the police force, but it's a it's a it's a vanishing commodity amongst men. Um, so these guys do band together for that reason. They tolerate crime, and that's where the 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 issue comes in. They won't lag their mates. They won't um, they won't uh, help the police and all this kind of stuff. But of course, that's a that's a virtue uh, you know amongst Australians generally that we don't dob in each other. You know you you know you're not a dobber. You know, but somehow when it comes to this higher level, that seems to be a vice, not a virtue. Um, and when you go through all the statistics of crime in this country, the bikies make up about 0.01% of it. Um, you know, uh, so it's just interesting that we want to see this visible threat and the state governments can, can sort it out by banning association, which of course goes to a basic human right. Um, and no matter how unpopular these bikies are, the high court is going to defend that principle um, over the next coming years as these states are pushed to, to, uh, through appeals to, to test their laws. I was just reading in uh, The Age this morning a story on the, the uh, bikey situation there by Reed Saxton and Nino Bucci. And uh, the opening paragraph made me smile. It says, The Balliou government will move to introduce laws later this year that ban outlaw motorcycle groups in Victoria. I was like, well, outlaw means criminal, right? If you're an outlaw, you already have broken the law. So if somebody's broken a law and you can prove that, you can bring charges against them. And I'm wondering how they're going to differentiate between an outlaw motorcycle group and just a motorcycle group. How are they going well, to the word outlaws, yeah, the word the word outlaw is very interesting. It, it actually relates to a, a sort of very old old um, English statute, which which at a certain point you could be declared an outlaw, and therefore you weren't protected by the laws. And therefore, anybody could shoot you on sight, pretty much, and, and they would not be it would not be a crime. Um, so that really doesn't exist anymore. So uh, outlaw is you know it just doesn't exist. And what it relates to is this is just a simple little diamond shaped patch on their colours that says one percent, the one percent of of motorcycle riders that nobody else will claim. You know, they, they and it's interesting when you look at some of this journalism. It's often they use the word outlawed, not outlawed, as if already that they're, they're, they're illegal groups, which they're not. Um, they're groups set up under council bylaws. You, 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 you appeal for a permit uh, from the council um, to get your clubhouse as an unincorporated association. Uh, you say it's a place to pursue uh, your shared love of motorcycles and fraternity and the rest of it, and you will, you will get your permit. That's a, that's a fact. So, so this whole idea that that there's somehow this subgroup that you know, that is that is they're outlaws. It's just not correct. And what I found in my research is that you go to a clubhouse of 20, 25 guys, you'll find probably a half of them have got some sort of criminal record, uh, usually for assault matters, minor theft, uh, this, that, and the other. Um, and then you'll find a group of guys who were just literally they're old style kind of like you know, Viking types. I like to say, you know, and they and they they they. Uh, they in their within their system they want to have their own form of justice their own values they want to keep them secret um, a lot of these guys will actually not even have criminal records they'll be uh, they'll be the guys that you that you don't want to pick in a, in a in a pub that's for sure but they're not necessarily um, criminals so you've got this heterogeneous group um, who who as I say are sort of bound by this these this desire to have fraternal links um, and yet we see them because the idea of a secret society today is very threatening to authority. 
Um, I guess in the same way as the Masons were back in the 19th century. They were seen as this kind of like shadowy group that had their own values that didn't necessarily correspond with the society around them. They would protect their members against the surrounding society. Um, and particularly post 9-11, this has come up as very uh, threatening to authority generally, particularly as we try to enforce more and more rules upon the population generally. You know, there's a rule for everything these days. And so when you've got a group that seems to thumb its nose at that system, the, the rest of us beleaguered rule followers get resentful. And we say, why aren't they being forced to wear their helmets or why are they, getting, you know, this kind of thing. So it's, a, it, it's more a social phenomenon rather than a criminal one in my view. And you said before that was it 0.01% of crime? Is it all crime, violent crime can be well, attributed to yeah. biker gangs? Crime generally, yeah, and, and and this is this and this is found across the board. I mean, I, I've spent a lot, you know, because what you see also the, the state governments have these um, these bikey task forces, and they're they and they're and they're being set up to administer these anti-association laws, which are really a rerun of the consorting laws from the <clears throat> from the fifties and sixties, where they um, kept people apart and they would count the associations. You would say, well, I've, I've caught you five times now in the last six months. I'm now going to book you for consorting. This is the way it will work. So you've got these groups that are focused solely on um, monitoring the interaction of these people. And to me, that's secret police. It's going back right into the kind of the worst kind of totalitarian type, uh, you know, police forces because, you know, it, it, we've seen this before. Um, so um, uh, what, was I, what was I going with that one? The uh, well, well, I was talking about the amount of crime that is attributable to the – Yeah, bike yeah. Games. So – so when you focus on one group in society, you know, and you 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 follow them, you bug them, you you pull them over at every opportunity, you will find crime statistics. You will you will you will get warrants. You will you will charge them with various things, and they put out these great big press releases saying that in the last six months of the task force, we've made three hundred arrests. Uh, we've got we've seized this many guns, this many drugs, and all this kind of stuff. But when you ask them, what's the the breakdown between um, serious indictable crime? And non-indictable crime, like in other words, uh, parking fines, speeding fines, non-payment of, of the rest of it, non-payment of fines. Um, they never, they'll never tell you that. They will never. And I've been asking this of every state government and territory in this country, and they all just try to. They all shut me off, and, I, and it's just a hilarious paper chase. Um, and they finally come back and they say, think, literally things like this: If you knew what we knew, you wouldn't be asking the question. And I think that's exactly why I'm asking it, because it, go, it goes to a, a basic basic pillar of our law is that you know, our legal system is that you are innocent until proven guilty. And this is where these association laws will fall down, is because they, they offend the separation of powers under the Constitution. I mean, we haven't got a Bill of Rights in this country or, or, or any codified set of, of, of rights and responsibilities, but the the Constitution, the way it was written in separate chapters, um, is our protection, is that the, the executive and, and its police force cannot usurp the functions of the judiciary. And where you seek to force people apart, regulate their interaction, you are in effect punishing them without charge. And this is where all these laws will fall down. And I think it's a good thing because people can't see their common interest with bikies they, they, they they're ugly they they're, they're hairy they're violent all these things that, you know that, and they probably are those things but but when you look at when we trade our our, our rights and freedoms for security it's a very poor deal usually so 
The question I wanted to ask you about the, this stat that you had before, 0.01%, why don't I read that in the media? Like this article from The Age by Reed and Nino this morning, I don't see anything in there that, that, that's balancing out the police allegations about the biker gangs. This is a great story to tell you know, you know, for the media. It's a fantastic story. You can tell it with your coat on the back of the chair from the office, you know? You don't have to go and speak to them. You just you just ring the coppers up, and they're and they're they're this is this is this is a, a big push for for resources. You know, the, the the police forces around the country need resources. They need manpower. They're you know they are starved of it, and that's a, a worthy you know ambition. But it's being done on the basis of appealing to the state government's uh, law and order agenda, and also the media's desire for these shock horror stories, spreading fear and discontent. You know, and so you won't see that these 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 balancing um, statistics and facts, you know, like for instance, in this in this whole uh, furphy down here, you've seen the uh, the Herald Sun in particular say that uh, there are four thousand bikies in Victoria alone. Right, that's complete bollocks. There's three thousand five hundred, according to the Australian Crime Commission, in the entire country, and yet yet they keep printing this fact: four thousand. You think, my goodness, and you know. We have more bikies than any other state um, in Australia, but nothing like 4,000, maybe 2,000, maybe about 1,800 tops. Um, and the interesting thing about all this fear campaign, though, is that it, it appeals to the, the disaffected, the alienated in society, and now they want to join. So far from making these things um, unpopular, by making them illegal, they're making them more popular. Um, you know, this this was actually a dying movement in the 70s and 80s. You know, it was uh, it, it was old men who'd watched Easy Rider and you know, The Wild One and you know this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, readers of Hunter S. Thompson. But the the whole uh, push to alienate these you know, these clubs appeals to people who are already on the fringe. They, they, they might they might already have a, a police conviction, their their um, a criminal conviction. Their um, employment opportunities are virtually zero. They uh, all that. Is being offered to them as a welfare check and a and a jail cell, um, so this again appeals to that um, need for camaraderie and an us and them. And the more you try to push them to the margin, the stronger you make them. The, I, I noticed that uh, this uh, clubhouse that the Victorian police raided the other day was a Hell's Angels clubhouse. Are the Hell's Angels in Victoria associated with the other Hell's Angels gangs around the world, or are they just declare themselves Hell's Angels. Do you have well, to, they are. Is it like a franchise? Do you have to buy into the Hell's Angels? Yeah, it's kind of franchise. It's but it's 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 not like you have to put the pickle on have the you know have the have the sauce a certain way and all that. I mean the, I mean there are certain values. The Hell's Angels are the sort of proto bikey club. They started off in the, you know in the late forties. Um, they uh, you know in really in Northern California, Sonny Barger, who who was the uh, the star of Hunter S. Thompson's uh, famous book Hell's Angels, uh, published in sixty five. Uh, that was the start of the movement per se. It, it, it's spread all over the world. It's become uh, the Hell's Angels or a template. They do have to um, uh, approve new chapters in new parts of the of the world. But once that once that chapter's established, uh, there's a there's a lot of autonomy in there, and everything comes down to a vote within the uh, the chapters themselves. So it's a it's a funny old thing. It's 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 a franchise, but not quite. Um, hard to explain until you see it in action, but they're always responding to local conditions. So it's, it's it really it's of not much use to um, to you know to ring up Sacramento in California to ask a question about coppers harassing you in in Thomastown, Victoria. So they but they do have a certain adherence to various values and club rules, if you like. 
I noticed that Ted Bailiu has accused, uh, you know, in using generic terms, he says he's accused the gangs of drug dealing, extortion and arson. But I'm wondering how many convictions they've had on those sorts of charges. Are they convicted? Do they have evidence? Are they convicting individuals or are they just smearing these guys? Well, the key thing here is the, the, the push is toward, directed at the club. They, yeah, they how, say, can, how can a club commit an act of extortion? It's got to be individuals within the club, right? Well, I mean, you do have gangs, criminal gangs in society that, that, that operate like that in a hierarchical structure where the boss has, you know, a, 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 an elite around him and then there's a, a whole lot of minions below that and you have a hierarchical structure and it does happen in those sort of situations. But the Viking Club is a flat democracy. You've got everyone's got an equal vote. Um, everybody um, perceives himself to be an individual with rights. Um, so uh, it's you, you, so this idea that you 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 find the the club voting on crime, voting on enterprises, uh, acting in concert, it has not been demonstrated. That's the thing, not been demonstrated. You find the crime in these clubs is twos and threes getting together and uh, finding opportunities outside the club, um, linking up with other elements who, who often aren't in bikies at all. They're guys who might like. The bikies might get on to say a or group of bikies might get on to say a source of some chemical that might be used in the production of some drug, and they will then link with other people outside, and they won't share the proceeds with their brothers in the club. Because when you think about it, twenty-five men in a room is not a good recipe for you know, for keeping secrets. Um, you know, it really isn't. And when you see how these guys move around, they have this broad circle of friends. They're very visible. Um, I know individuals in the clubs, um, and they and they you know. They, they don't want to be part of someone else's criminal enterprise. They've got their own things going on. So, so you don't find the, 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 um, the, the crime being committed as a club, apart from the violent interactions with other clubs. That's where it does come in. That's where they will bound together to, to, to take on the visible threat coming from another club. But getting back to my question, how many uh, prosecutions have been made of men who are members of biker gangs for things like extortion, uh, drug dealing, arson, etc.? Yeah, listen, it happens. I mean, uh, listen, there, there, there certainly have been prosecutions, but but just not nothing like it, it's not out of proportion to the to the to their numbers. You know, if you, you know what I'm saying. Uh, you know, they're not. They're not, they're not cornering the market in extortion or cornering the market in drugs. They're involved in it uh, across the board, but we're not seeing this, this, uh, you know, these huge numbers. Uh, you know. And the other thing about extortion is interesting, actually, because what you've got in the, what I call the outlaw nation, which is the, the sort of the, the, the people that have turned their face away from the, the, the legal justice system uh, and they, 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 they submit to an informal, parallel kind of system where – um, people, uh, there's discussions, there's mediations, there's verdicts, there's sort of kangaroo courts going on. And in those situations, people will go to the police sometimes to, to see what the police can do for them. They haven't got what they wanted out of the mediation or the situation. So they go to the police and say, listen, I've, I've been extorted. And then the, and the police says, okay, well, what have you done in the situation? Well, I've done X, Y, and Z. They said, well, we can't ignore your criminality there. And, and therefore the, 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 the the willingness to cooperate disappears. So then, so then they retreat back into their own system. So it's usually it's a game that's kept within the club. Willing willing players uh, submit to this form of justice because that's the way they've lived. That's the way they've they've gone and bought products or or, or, or you know set up their businesses. They've they've submitted to this kind of alternative parallel system that operates in the in the outlaw nation. Hmm. 
And of course, it, it seems to complicate issues uh, even further when there are very serious suggestions that the police force in Queensland and in Victoria, and I'm sorry, in New South Wales still today, is itself uh, highly corrupt. I read again in The Age this morning that uh, Sir Ken Jones, uh, before he resigned uh, down in Victoria, what was he, the deputy commissioner last year? That's right. He apparently went to the OPI director, the Office of Police Integrity, Michael Strong, and said that he had had concerns about the competence and independence of the Victorian police. Is there a general feeling down there today that the Victorian police are still corrupt? Well, I just think it's completely politicised, which is a form of corruption. I mean, we saw there's an enduring image that, that, that will follow the, the Chief Commissioner Simon Overland when he was appointed as Chief Commissioner. The, the then Police Minister and the Premier were pictured uh, pinning his epaulets on. Uh, it was a very, very symbolic uh, image because, of course, the Police Commissioner works for the people, not the government of the day, you know, and that really showed how dependent um, the Chief Commissioner was upon the favour of the government of the day. It's a compromising thing. And as we went through last year, we saw increasingly uh, the Chief Commissioner was willing to do the bidding of the government. He said it on radio a few times, you know, like, I work for the government of the day. It just appalled me to hear it. It was just this sort of, this kind of like admission that he was, that he was now a political figure and beholden to his political masters. And it was, it was appalling. So, Who does the it, Chief Commissioner report to? Well, the governor per, per se, the governor, it, it's, a gov- it's a governor in council um, uh, appointment. The state government makes a recommendation, uh, which, uh, which, which is obviously uh, influential, but it's not the final say. The governor makes the appointment. And it's, it's, it's so that the police commissioners seem to be above politics, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, unfortunately, it, it, he's been heavily politicized. And we saw this come to a head last year before the state election where the the, uh, the former premier John Brumby asked uh, the uh, the chief commissioner to to release incomplete and favourable statistics on violence in the city, which which would have shown which did show a significant drop in the um, level of drunken violence in the city, which was a huge is still a huge issue in Victoria and was one of the big election agenda items. So there was there was the the chief commissioner um, putting a case for the re-election of the government. It was, a, it was a really awful moment, I thought. And Sir Ken Jones, who is a damn good policeman, I have to say, um, um, and, I, and, I don't, and I don't say that about many, um, uh, he said, no, I won't do that. And he actually sought advice from the OPI about what his rights and responsibilities were in the situation. And that, from there, poisoned the relationship between he and Overland, which finally ended up with, with, um, with uh, Sir Ken Jones uh, allegedly um, talking to media, leaking material and so forth, um, which uh, led to his resignation and then his, his abrupt sacking or, or, or being sent on holidays to get him out of the place earlier. And we've, we've had this uh, remarkable crisis unfolding ever since. Have you t- please tell me you've watched The Wire by now. I have. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, like, it's like watching The Wire. It really is, actually. With, with, uh, but they aren't as good actors, you know. <laughs> Plenty of acting going on, though. So uh, what's happening with the Ballyu government in cleaning up OPI? There's been concerns going on for years now about the competence of OPI, hasn't there? Oh, well, the whole, the whole, system, of, the whole system of these uh, patchwork of, of, uh, of overseeing bodies. I mean, what we needed uh, in Victoria is 
was a royal commission into the police. We saw this whole meshing during the gangland war between corrupt police and the villains involved in the drugs. That was that 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 was extraordinarily corrosive. We 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 never really saw the the full extent of that. That's been pushed under the carpet. Uh, instead, we saw this officer police integrity be brought into to um, to uh, existence. That was supposed to to uh, head off calls for that. It wasn't properly constituted. It's had a, a number of high profile cases uh, collapse because of of failure to follow procedure. Um, uh, you know, blurry legal um, you know compliance and so forth. Um, so its authority has been significantly un- undermined, and therefore it's been seen to be campaigning for its own legitimacy, bringing cases that are high profile that will actually win public support for uh, what it's doing. And I think, I think again, uh, policing and law enforcement needs to be above popularity contests. It needs to be about enforcing the principles of the law, not about what the readers of the Herald Sun will get excited about and may influence their vote. Mm. And speaking of police in Victoria, one of the stories that's just bemused the hell out of me in the last uh, week or so is this uh, new legislation that your Premier is apparently pushing through that gives police the ability to find people for swearing in public? Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's uh, where, where do you draw the line? I mean, if you go to the football on a Saturday, you can arrest half the crowd, you know? <laughs> the decency uh, police. Yeah, the decency police. And I think this is, again, this sort of reaching into our lives and trying to regulate social interaction. And, and it really is playing for the cheap seats, Cameron. It's about, it's about the little old ladies who, 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 fear, who, who feel fearful about most things, let's face it, you know, and, you, and you're trying to say to them, you know, we're going to protect you. Or, or conversely, we're going to make you respect the police. You know, make you respect the police? Not going to happen, you know. You earn respect. You know, a good policeman doesn't care if someone swears at him. You know, he, he, has, he deals with him, you know, nonetheless. So it's, I think the Bailey government shown itself to be it – was, it was unready for government. It didn't have a strong uh, understanding of the community it was, it, was, um, it was seeking to govern. It's been pitchforked into, into government by the, the failure of the, you know, the Brumby government to present a new agenda for, its, you know, for, for re-election. So they're now having to come up with things, little band-aids, you know, like the other – swearing is one thing and it's a kind of amusing thing. I, I, you know, I think it will probably – it hit, hits the headlines and then in practice it will be unworkable and it will disappear. What I found actually much more disturbing was this um, – a, a desire to, to have mandatory detention of 16 and 17-year-olds for serious assaults, two-year, you know, mandatory sentencing. Um, we've already got a huge youth uh, detention issue here in Victoria. The place is overflowing. Um, these kids are being dumped out of the system into you know, juvenile detention. Um, and he wants to stuck, stick hundreds, if not thousands more, into detention in the next couple of years. It's just mad stuff. What kind of assaults? Just serious assaults. I mean, this, we have this problem at the moment, um, you know, of, of kids running wild. I mean, there's, you know, kids you know, bashing each other in the street or bashing elderly people and robbing them, taking their phones and all this kind of stuff. It actually happens across the country, but there's a bit of a, an, an epidemic of it here in Victoria, and it frightens people. I mean, I was, uh, I was walking the dog the other day, actually, down the middle of Bridge Road here in Richmond, and there was a group of 16-year-old, probably eight or ten of them, and they were beating up on, on one of their mates there, and there was old ladies and women and men, and they didn't do anything. You know, they, they were terrified. I just went up and went, hi, what are you doing? And, you know, and, said, you know, and just kind of you know, did the old, which, which I guess people used to do in my day, you know, like you'd always have somebody who would come up and say something, but, you know, 
And um, but people are fearful of, of stepping in, so they want the, go- the the government, the police, to step in and make the make the place safe, if you like, you know. And that's a reasonable um, kind of uh, ambition. But just locking everyone up is not the answer. And I think you know, we see state governments all the time saying we're going to get tougher on you know these soft judges and these you know these kids being put on bonds, and we're going to throw them all in jail and show them what's what. The problem is they come out of jail eventually. You only keep them in there for eighteen months, two years, and what are their prospects after that? You've got to ma- now manage this this disaffected, alienated, um, you know, fringe dweller. So yeah, it's kind of mad. Who's just become harder after two years he, inside? That's right. He's now he's now got serious criminal associations. He's 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 gone to the College of Knowledge, as they call it, you know, in terms of criminal uh, wisdom. And um, you've got a serious problem on your hands. Because, I mean, just locking him up is just it's a it's a system of justice based on vengeance. That that the the let's let's vent our bile by by locking people up and uh, let's let's um, I mean we had this ridiculous thing in the Herald Sun recently where they said you get to you know have your say on sentencing the the government's got a survey and we want you to fill it out how long should should people be locked up for and this is what we're going to make judges you know follow this is the value government's uh, move again this is just a crass populist move and um, you know they're going to they're going to appoint judges who'll do the bidding. Of the, uh, the the state government again, it offends the national constitution. The, the judiciary has got to be independent. It's, it's just a, a fundamental tenet of our you know, society. And where's the media in all of this? Bringing some common sense to it. Oh, they're loving the bloodlust, sniffing blood, sniffing. You know, uh, because they've got this massive issue, as you well know, Cameron. That their, their circulation is crashing. Their business model is is broke. You know, so. They they have to become more and more shrill and angry and and uh, and and, and sim- simplistic uh, in order to keep that hardcore of of uh, readers on board. So there's very little balance in the discussion anymore. It's very hard. I mean, I grew up in journalism where you were encouraged. You know, like my my hero in journalism was J. F. Archibald, the first editor of the Bulletin, and he used to tell people like Banjo Patterson, who worked for him, he said, "You've got to sing the descant. It's easy to sing the chorus." You know, it's easy to easy to sound good there, but but the harder thing is to is to have the alternative voice, the one that from a reasoned position that put the other side, and that's just not commercial these days, Cameron. It's just not commercial. It's it's, it's terrifying to me that that the journalists coming up now are being encouraged to to kind of stoke the conventional wisdom, not seek independent truth. I saw Bill Moyers on the Daily Show uh, in the last week or so, and he had a great quote. He said something. I'm going to paraphrase, but it was journalism is reporting what they want to keep hidden. Everything else is just publicity. Well, that's true. And, you know, and, and now, you know, you just, you just don't have that investigative spirit, you know, because um, it's so much easier because, I mean, they've, they've, they've really cut down on, on, the, on, the, on the labor force in journalism significantly. There's, there's far less journalists on the floor than there used to be. And there, there aren't those loose men, if you like, who can go off and spend three or four months or six months, even a year, working on something that, that isn't published each week. Um, so that luxury is gone. So you've still got to sell papers. Uh, therefore, you need you become enmeshed with the, the PR machine for the cops, for the state government, for other bodies in society, because, and you need access to them. So if you show too much independence, you will lose your access, and that's key. So, you know, you, you've just got to be very careful of that. So, and, you know, consequently, I've lost access to almost everybody, but I don't care. Because, because what I'm finding is that the okay the, the chief commissioner won't speak to you, but the but the lower ranks are clamouring to speak to you. 
the politicians who aren't in the in the ruling clique want to speak to you. The average person wants to speak to you, you know? And and that to me is, it's great because you don't see any other journalists in that space because they're all back at the office with the coat on the chair, you know? You go into these newsrooms and they're, they're really demoralised places. Um, there isn't that spirit of, of uh, you know, mischief and and camaraderie that the you know that I was used to when I first started in the 80s it's uh, it's a very corporate environment and uh, the editors rarely seen the um, the journalists are expected to their content providers rather than journalists there's a there's a very unhealthy kind of swarming by the commercial interests uh, you know in the newspaper um, it's not an environment where I think um, that's healthy for you know for people who who, who really want to tell the truth to be honest yeah, it's good to hear you say this, mate, because, you know, as you well know, over the last five or six years, I've been in a, a lot of debates with uh, journalists and editors, and in, in the public space, they'll always just say that I'm full of shit and I, I don't live in these rooms, so I don't know what's going on. But then quietly after a drink afterwards, uh, at least 50% of them will say, mate, I can't wait to get out of there. It's terrifying. Um, do you, Can you confirm that there's... Uh, an editorial influence that occurs just by nature of the fact that journalists are told to focus on a particular story or a particular angle, or you just learn when you're in the newsroom that these are the stories that are going to get up and these are the stories that I might, uh, you know, I shouldn't bother trying to chase. Oh, exactly, because you will you'll you'll find yourself marginalised, and you know it, again, it's it's all it corresponds with the with the decline of the business model. When when you know we were the only game in town. Uh, all the classified advertising was being done in, in newsprint, not on the web or any other form. Um, you know, there was a there was a there was, was a security, you know, on the editorial floor because you weren't you weren't you weren't fearing for your job security. You know, um, there wasn't that sort of uh, you know knock on your door from the advertising guys saying, well, we really need to push this because it'll mean X amount of value. You know, yeah. and this now this now happens as of right, and I've you know, and you see these now. These um, uh, you know working parties being put together of editorial people plus advertising people, uh, looking at new features in the paper, looking at you know new new ways to commercialise the content. It just never happened you know in the past. So the commercial aspect has really come in, and you need and it becomes pretty obvious what you can and can't say uh, or certain viewpoints. I mean, for instance, like to to on the bikies, if I if, if we were to come out and say, listen, nothing to see here, move along. I mean that's 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 fifty front pages that, that you won't see of the bikey fear, the bikey menace, you know, be afraid of this. And people, you know, are afraid of that. Therefore, it's a hot point, uh, whether it's true or not. So um, it really has changed, and it's it is demoralising to people. And you and you have seen a lot of good people drift out of the job as a result. We should do an entire show on this next time you come on, Matt. I feel like that's something we could have a good hour-long discussion on. And you've got an interesting perspective, and because you're now, you know, uh, working in other mediums and and freelance, uh, I feel like I'm going to get an honest answer out of you a lot sooner than I get it out of most of your former colleagues. Uh, just before we go, though, I wanted to check about your mate Carl. Uh, what? What? Still what's, dead. Still <laughs> what, dead. What's happened in the Carl Williams investigation? Have we found out yet why he was moved from solitary confinement into the general prison population? Yeah, well, that's a whole lot of bollocks anyway because he's been, he's, he wasn't in the general population. There's a bit of a myth here being run, by, again, by journalists who want, to, who want to upscale the story. I mean, Carl's been in the Acacia, was in the Acacia unit uh, since 2005. He was, he was in his cell by himself, but he was always exercising with one or two or three other 
prisoners, and that and that varied over time who he was with. Um, he was put with Matthew Johnson, his alleged killer, um, some months before um, it uh, his murder. And and I spoke to Carl the weekend before he was murdered, and he had no problems with Matthew because I was asking, "How are you going with your with the guy you're running out with?" Because I always I always perceived there would be a threat from somebody to kill him, and that would be the obvious conduit. But there was absolutely no issue between Carl and Matthew. Um, you know, this comes back to a very simple matter of jailhouse justice and hierarchy. I think it's not about a, an elaborate plot that that might have involved correction officers or public servants and outside gangsters and money and God knows what, um, you know, you, you get killed for pretty trifling things in prison. And uh, I think this is going to prove to be the same thing. But the interesting part about what is going on with Carl, though, is that the, the outer circle of criminals that were working with him are still going out there. And the, the Piranha Task Force and a couple of other task forces are still uh, are, are pushing into that space and trying to, 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 to establish links between those uh, helpers and, and, and thugs or whatever and other unsolved crimes. Um, I understand that elements of the Williams clan are back in the business. They're making pills again. Uh, um, you know, uh, you know, you, it's uh, got the family factory going again. Um, so, you know, uh, this stuff never sleeps. And, uh, you know, I think there'll be enough for another underbelly or two at least. I don't know if you saw the uh, Global Commission on Drug Policy report that came out last week. I didn't, actually. Uh, United Nations Commission that has a lot of uh, the commissioners are range from Richard Branson to George Shultz to you know various uh, ex presidents and ex prime ministers. They issued a, a global report that basically declared that the war on drugs has been a complete and dismal failure, and that it was time for a completely different approach for uh, you know legalizing or, or, or uh, decriminalizing. A range of drugs, including obviously marijuana, uh, from you know, to stop tackling both uh, users and the dealers down the, the the small end of the scale as criminals, and start treating them as somebody that have a you know either a health problem or an economic problem in the form of the dealers. Ideas that viewers of the Wire will be very familiar with. Uh, well, sure. I mean, excuse my cynicism, but that, that report will be, will be put on the shelf with all the other reports that have been made in the last 10 or 15 years that say exactly the same thing. You know, this we cannot change. This, this, this public policy on the war on drugs is so entrenched. We've got the churches that back it. We've got the, the groups in society that back it. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a huge business. It's, it's turned, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it pours billions into, into police forces around the world. Um, you know, it's just too deep and, and, and ingrained to change now, unfortunately. And, of course, it's the root of all evil. This prohibition model is the reason why we've seen 35,000 Mexicans slaughtered in the last uh, six or seven years, uh, you know, um, in, in the drug wars down there as they battle for access into the U.S. Uh, market. Um, and uh, we're just not learning. Um, it's, <laughs> you know, it, I don't think anything's going to change, Cameron, sad, sad to say. And then on the recording, my microphone started to play up. I think I've got to get a new cord for my H2 mic. It's crackling and uh, being very touchy. Um, well, I, I've invited Adam back on to do a, a full hour talking about the decline in news journalism, journalism uh, that he's seen firsthand and also how the, the economics of the media business uh, are driving that. 
something that uh, is obviously moving in a direction. You, you can't reverse the economic models back to where they used to be. Um, so I think that'd be great. Uh, I'd like to thank Adam for coming on. It's always good fun to chat to him and, and get a perspective on all these sorts of issues that, uh, you know, the, a little bit of the underworld stuff that uh, he has done a lot of this uh, research on. Always good to learn a little bit more about that kind of stuff. Hope you enjoyed it and uh, talk to you again soon, folks. Keep fighting the good fight. If we're honest, we will look into the mirror and see what the truth is and see what the truth is and see what the truth is. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. It will be podcast.